I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, Caroline Binham, our financial regulation correspondent, and Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent. And we have a guest from BBVA, Jose Manuel González Parama, who is the head of regulation at the Spanish Bank. We'll also be joined down the line from the US by Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor, and his guest. This week, we'll be discussing the health of the EU's banking system, also looking at banks' latest attempts at hiring good people, And finally, our segment from the US, Ben has been talking to Bruce Van Sorn, who is the chief executive of Citizens. So first to the vexed topic of EU banks and how healthy or unhealthy they are. Jose Manuel, thanks very much for coming in to see us. You are head of regulation, among other things, at one of Spain's biggest banks. And you've obviously lived through at quite close quarters some of the difficulties that Spanish banking has been through in recent years. We've obviously seen plenty of other countries' banking systems in tumult over that period. But this has gone on for so long. We're eight years after the financial crisis. The Eurozone crisis itself has been going for five or six years Why are European banks still not up to scratch in terms of regulatory capital? Why are we seeing what seem like emergency cash calls being launched in Italy and in Spain right now? What's behind this problem? For a start, none of the problems that we see today are entirely new. Some of them were spotted on the occasion of the stress testing and the asset quality review done by the ECB at the end of 2014. So after two years of very low rates, impinging on profitability, it's not surprising that some banks have got to the point they need to raise capital or to address long-standing problems. In Spain, we've seen Banco Popular coming up with a capital-raising plan. Do you think they are alone in the Spanish system? Because we've seen plenty of Italian banks needing fresh capital. Mm. Will there be more Spanish banks, do you think? I'm assuming not BBVA, but maybe I'm wrong. Let me not mention any names, but let's not forget that the uh, 60 billion euro coming from the uh, European Union were used to recapitalize the Spanish banking sector. So what we have seen, I think, is a quite isolated instance. I don't think the banks are all alike in Spain. You have the main businesses carried out by two main players, and then you have other medium and low size, I would say, banks. But uh, there is nothing of a general issue as against capital or provisioning. And how does the Spanish situation compare, do you think, with the rest of Europe? Because we are in an extreme situation in terms of monetary policy and the squeeze on margins. We're in an extreme situation in terms of other forms of quantitative easing from the ECB. And at the same time, the regulatory side of the ECB is putting on the pressure. We've got further stress tests later this year, which may be one reason why banks are raising capital now ahead of those stress tests. How is the system going to get through this? With a great effort, I would say, because we are facing, like anybody else, regulation and no rules are being implemented. 
profitability is low on the back of a very low rates, uh, flat yield curve, and also still the delayed impact of the uh, real estate crisis. Reputation of the banks, not just in Spain, but in Spain as well, is not at the highest point ever. And you start to see also on top of this, the uh, digital revolution having an impact on the business. So this is the perfect storm. And on top of this, you have to know that in Spain, like in some other countries, not the majority, mortgages are indexed to Euribor, which means that the impact is quicker and uh, more visible in the mortgage book. But against this, I think diversification also is more than normal, so you can diversify business and also geographically. Martin, you wanted to come in there. Yeah, I just wanted to ask, do you think that in terms of banking regulation, have we reached peak regulation or is there more to come? For instance, there's in the works things coming like forcing banks to hold more capital against their sovereign debt portfolios, which could be a massive further requirement on top of all the ones that already exist. In addition to all the mortgage changes, the kind of flaws in terms of capital on mortgages, on corporate debt, potentially on conduct risk, the so-called Basel IV agenda is quite impactful potentially, isn't it? Yeah. So we are at the point where regulators and supervisors are telling us that they are comfortable with the levels of capital the industry has been putting up. But at the same time, aside from implementation issues, because things decided back in time will be implemented over time in 16, in 19 and so on, there is some uncertainty. And this is why we talk about Basel 4, regulators don't like this, or Basel 3.2 or Basel 3 plus or whatever. That is basically... All these efforts leading to some harmonization of internal models and some cleaning up of the uh, methods used by the banks in order to put up capital. And this is still open. We don't know yet what is the end game of this, but it will certainly require more capital, in particular to some banks using business models where they have been, in a way, possibly very lax in the way they have calculated the capital needs. Martin, what do you make of that assessment? I think that's a fair assessment. There is a lot of uncertainty and it probably will end up with banks being forced to hold more capital. And it'll probably be, as you said, the biggest banks, the most globally systemic ones, the so-called GCIFIs or GCIBs, are probably the furthest along in terms of getting themselves ready for Basel 3.5, Basel 4, whatever you want to call it. It's probably the next level down that are perhaps less diversified and perhaps have done less transformational work on their strategy, on their balance sheets, that will be the most impacted potentially by some of the changes still to come. And you have the discussion on the so-called MREL in Europe, which is not closed yet. Just to clarify, that's basically the debt that could be bail-inable. This is the kind of European version of um, so-called TLAC. Yes. But many things remain open for discussion. And uh, announcement will come in Q3 this year to be implemented next year. So it's quite an effort. (laughs) You have got a busy job. Caroline, all of those assessments are, I think, very fair. How does that fit in with the broader backdrop? Yeah, I think there's an agenda at the moment where regulators and policymakers are trying to emphasise the quality of capital rather than the quantity and to eliminate the gaming of the system that we saw by some banks. I think also we are hearing that policymakers and regulators are generally happy with the amount of capital in the system. And that, of course, echoes a theme that we're hearing from governments around the EU where they are emphasising growth and jobs over post-crisis firefighting reforms. Yeah, interesting point you made about capital in the system, whether it's held in the right institutions at the right level is another question, I suppose. In aggregate, there may be distortions. Thank you very much, Jose Manuel, for your thoughts on all of that. 
Let's move on to our second topic. Laura, there's been a lot in the news, or I should say in the FT, much of it written by you, about the whole issue of banks' ability to hire good people or tactics that they're employing to deal with the perceived lack of talent being drawn into the banking sector. One of the most striking headlines was one that you had around Goldman Sachs and how many grad trainees they're managing to lure as applicants. Yeah, I guess banks have had to think very long and hard about how they actually attract and retain talent over the last few years. I mean, they've been losing out to the kind of sexier industries, the likes of Google, Facebook, and then also to some of the fintech startups where they do promise a much bigger payoff faster if you end up picking the right one. So I think banks have really had to struggle to try to work out how to make themselves attractive to candidates coming out who really have very different needs and very different wants than what they had previously. Back in the day, it was enough for banks to just pay people well. Now they have all these candidates coming who also want to have a work-life balance. They want to feel as if the work they're doing is meaningful. They want to feel fulfilled. So that's given banks a whole separate set of demands to cope with. Now, against all that backdrop, it's very easy to think that there is a really big crisis and that banks are really finding it very hard to fill their seats. So what was interesting about the Goldman Sachs story was that it shows that there is still a very big number of people who do actually want to join banks. So when we talk about the brain drain and when we talk about the fall in popularity of banking, we have to bear in mind we're still talking about a fall in popularity for an industry where the roles were actually vastly oversubscribed previously. In the case of Goldman Sachs, they have 250,000 applications and that is between people coming out of MBAs also people coming out of their undergrad degrees. Goldman Sachs won't give us a figure on exactly how many analysts they will hire from that, but we're thinking it will be less than a thousand easily. So it's still vastly, vastly oversubscribed. And what about the quality of applicants? Because anecdotally, you hear from some bankers anyway, complaints that the top calibre people are the ones that they're losing to the tech industry or to hedge funds or whatever. Is there any suggestion that, you know, these 250,000 applicants for the Goldman Sachs internships are less top-notch than they might have been five, ten years ago? So there are some really interesting conversations going on across banks about what the top candidates actually are. People traditionally think about the top candidates as being the ones who came out of the best MBA schools, the ones who had the highest GPA scores in the US, being the top academic performers. And certainly we are seeing fewer candidates from the top 10 MBA schools picking banking than we had previously. So if your definition of the top candidates is that you want to have the Ivy League people, the Oxford people, then yes, there are less of those coming in. But some banks are taking a more holistic look at what the top candidates actually are. And they're saying that some of their most successful older bankers actually didn't come from really technical backgrounds, didn't come from economics, didn't come from finance didn't come from the Ivy League. So I think they are obviously very keen to attract top talent, but they're taking a broader look at what that top talent might actually be. And that's partly out of the necessity of having fewer of the traditional Ivy League top people coming to them. But it's also because these Ivy League people tend to come in and a lot of them use the investment banks as a kind of stepping stone to the job that they actually want. So they'll come, they'll work in the investment bank for two years, three years. During that time, the investment bank will pay them very well. They'll also spend a lot of resources training them. And then the candidate will actually go on to work somewhere else. And that isn't the best model for the banks. They do need to lose some people, but they are losing too many people. So there is a school of thought that says maybe if you hire different people, and if you didn't hire all the top Ivy League candidates, you would get people who were actually committed to long-term careers within investment banks. And that might be a healthier situation for the investment banks. And just briefly, they're also coming up with, in some cases, more inventive ways to hold on to people, aren't they? 
especially now that pay is maybe less out of line, less generous than it used to be, more protracted in terms of the payback. Morgan Stanley, you were writing about, has dreamt up a sabbatical scheme. Yeah, Morgan Stanley are offering people a four-week sabbatical when they attain the vice president level, and that typically takes you five or six years, and it's done after an enormous amount of hours in between starting and then. And what's kind of interesting about it is if you talk to some of these really top bankers, the only time they get a proper break tends to be when they actually change jobs. When you change jobs, you typically get a gardening leave period of three months. So if you've been working hard in a bank for six years or so, and if you just want a break, often the easiest way to actually get a break is to change jobs. So in the Morgan Stanley case, they're saying, well, listen, if you actually stay with us, when you go to VP, you could have an extra four weeks off. You can go and do something and then you can come back and start your VP career fresh. This is paid leave. This is yeah, paid leave. Now, there are some concerns within the bank that people might think that if they actually take it, they're seen as being kind of soft. And the bank is very determined to try to make it the convention that everyone eligible for it does actually take it. Okay. Well, thanks for those thoughts on the hiring outlook for banks. We'll see how things pan out. Let's go to our final segment. Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor, has been talking to Bruce Van Sorn, a name who's familiar in Britain, actually, former finance director of Royal Bank of Scotland, but nowadays the chief executive of Citizens, the RBS spin-off in the US. Since emerging from the shadow of its former owner, Royal Bank of Scotland, the Rhode Island-based bank has been keeping things simple, increasing revenues faster than expenses, while striking sensible-looking deals with trendy partners. Citizens buys a lot of student loans from SoFi, for example, and has seen success supplying Apple customers with in-store loans to buy iPhones. And it's doing all that under the direction of Mr. Van Sorn, who joined Citizens three years ago from RBS, following stints at Bank of New York Mellon, Deutsche Bank and Wasserstein Perella. Bruce, welcome. Now, before we Thank get you. into those, those fascinating deals, let's talk about the macro environment, and in particular, the US Federal Reserve, Daniel Tarullo, talking about reducing the regulatory burden on uh, banks of your size, up to 250 billion assets. Uh, the two-part stress test, which is um, occupying lots of people right now, as of next year for these banks will be a one-part test, essentially, just the quantitative DFAS, the Dodd-Frank Act stress test. Now, that's surely a good thing. Yeah, that's good news. And I think the Fed is wise, Governor Trullo, to make a distinction between large regional banks who are basically doing traditional banking, uh, not very complicated or sexy, but just taking in deposits, making loans and providing advice to customers. Uh, So I think we'll get a bit of a dividend, although through the supervisory process, I would expect that many of the building blocks that went into the qualitative process, the supervisors would still expect to see and will review. It'll end some of the drama as to whether you passed or failed the qualitative test, which will be a good thing. Okay. And let's talk about some of these deals you'll be doing, in particular SoFi, which is a a very um, trendy San Francisco-based firm that specializes in refinancing student loans. And you've been buying lots from them. You've been originating your own. What's so appealing about student loans? Well, at this point, the kind of risk-adjusted returns that we get from those loans is attractive. So they're typically young graduates who have a good job and have established a, a good credit track record who are in position potentially to consolidate any debt that they have at a lower interest rate. So we think it's a socially useful product. Everybody's worried about the overhang of student debt. It's good for the borrower and it's good for us. But you're one of very few, as I understand it, very few private banks in this space. Why are you so unusual? Well, the government has crowded out most of the private lenders who were in this space. And I think some of the big banks like Chase, given the size of the markets that's left, have just decided to pull up stakes and exit. So for us, we think it's still uh, an attractive place to be. Mm -hmm. And uh, it does fit a need. And uh, 
you know, on the refi side, the players who are in the market don't necessarily want to, the bigger folks who are bigger than us don't want to necessarily refinance their back book at, into lower interest rates. Right. So we have a little bit of running room since our own back book isn't as big as some others like Sally May or Wells Fargo, that uh, the refinancing product actually is a new loan for us, mm -hmm. uh, which is interesting. And it also brings in younger customers, which banks uh, obviously need. It's the lifeblood for any bank to acquire new customers. So is, is that the same rationale for, for, for the, um, the deal with Apple to supply in-store loans to buy phones? Yeah, I think that one also, uh, it's an attractive uh, risk-adjusted return. It's an unsecured loan that uh, has some of the characteristics of a credit card portfolio. And those credit card portfolios are hard to grow. So it gives us an attractive asset. Uh, we've also uh, taken in uh, approximately 500,000 customers uh, uh, through this program with Apple to date. And uh, there's opportunities for us to cross-sell into some of those customers. Mm -hmm. And some of this, it seems you're building it at the expense of the, the auto loan portfolio where things are getting a little bit hairy. If you listen to Jamie Diamond, he's talking about some yeah, I slipping think, standards. I think, you know, the, what, what he's probably referring to is more that there's uh, a lot of oxygen into the subprime areas, mm -hmm. which tend to have some difficulty when the economy hits a bump. We've been staying in the uh, safer part of that market in the super prime and prime lending space, but the returns uh, really aren't there. The, the, you know, they're kind of... Uh, have been competed away. And so we're starting to, uh, no pun, tap the brakes on the auto side and pivot a little more into that education refinance loan or home equity line of credits or mortgages uh, yeah. seem to be better places for us to deploy our capital on the consumer side. And how about energy? Um, the oil price has, has staged a bit of a recovery. Yeah. Is it time to, to look again at some perhaps increasing well, I think we're still though. on some of the reserve-based lending portfolios still going through evaluating the borrowing bases and there'll be a little shrinkage in the uh, lines uh, open in those portfolios. 15, 20%? Yeah, I think that's probably right. But uh, look, I think the energy sector is always going to be important to the economy. And if we see some oil price stability, I think uh, that might be an opportunity down the line to start to grow that portfolio again. Okay. And looking um, again at the, um, the the macro picture, uh, there's been talk um, amongst analysts desperate to generate stories, perhaps, uh, that um, the merger wave uh, could be upon us uh, before long as banks start to realize that as, as the credit cycle perhaps turns and losses mount and returns and equity are still depressed, that the, the best way to boost them is by combining. Now, you're in that sweet spot of around 120, 140 billion of, uh, of assets, lots of banks looking to do deals. Um, is that something for, for 2016, something for 2017? Well, um, for the industry, I think you'll still see uh, banks trying to do the smaller deals. And I think the regulators are showing some comfort with deals up to 40, 50 billion. Mm -hmm. uh, it'll be interesting to see uh, once the banks have, a, have basically fulfilled some of the higher requirements regulators are expecting of them, whether those deals can get bigger from there. But I don't right. think that's a 2016 phenomenon. Uh, we'll have to wait and see about 17. Okay. And perhaps one wild card is the fact that Tarullo will no longer be there uh, within a few months. Does that mean that the, the regulatory attitude to, to sort of tapering the big banks and, and boosting uh, the slightly smaller banks is, is probably under review? I, I don't know. I think that the Fed operates as a consensus organization. So I think removing any one person mm -hmm. uh, won't make a big shift in terms of their philosophy. So I think uh, he's he's been... Uh, a, a kind of force uh, on the supervisory side, but I think he's surrounded himself with a good team, and I don't, I wouldn't expect uh, his retirement to cause uh, big swings in terms of philosophy. Okay, 
Uh, and finally, finally, uh, the, the impact of the RBS um, sales of its stake uh, over the past few years. Uh, what's, what's it meant for citizens? Are, are you breathing a little more freely now? Yeah, look, I, I think RBS knew me well. I was on their board and mm-hmm. I was over there for four years. So um, I think they, they had confidence in our plan and my ability to lead that plan. And they certainly had their plate filled. So uh, we did have, uh, I think, a fair degree of autonomy once I arrived to benchmark ourselves versus U.S. peers and go on offense again, which we did. Uh, but it it is a psychological boost to be free. Um, and it does, uh, it, it feels like we set out to accomplish something, that we did it, and we've uh, been able to woo investors who believe in us, which mm-hmm. uh, which is a good feeling for us. But but frankly, I think we were, we developed this plan, we've been executing this plan, and we just need to continue to focus on uh, good execution from here. Bruce Van Solen, thank you very much. My pleasure. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank all my guests. That's Martin, Caroline, Laura, and our outside guest from BBVA, Jose Manuel gonzalez Paramo. Also, Ben and his guest, Bruce Van Sorn. And thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon and Amy Keane. Until next week, goodbye. If you enjoy listening to our FT podcasts, please help more people discover them by rating them or writing a review of them on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you download them. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money.